Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today, uh, I am uh, happy to be joined by somebody I call the Mets fan incarnate. Uh, he is an author of uh, Faith and Third and Flushing and the Happy Recap series. And he also writes a blog uh, titled the same name, Faith and Fear and Flushing, and that is Greg Prince. Greg, it's always a pleasure to welcome you to the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast. Thank you, and Sam. Glad, glad to be here at the intersection. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're always talking a little National League legacy, uh, New York National League legacy on here. Um, and uh, I want to start with something that I heard Vince Stelly say last night as I was, uh, I was listening to that long uh, and always excruciating uh, Mets, um, Phillies, 14-inning uh, affair, uh, and it, over the past few years, we've been uh, very, very used to going deep into the extra innings, and uh, so I was flipping over, and the Dodgers are home, and Vince Scully was still on there, and I, I wish I could do a, a great Vince Scully uh, impression, but I, I'm just going to have to read it in my own voice. Uh, so this is what Vince Scully said. I wrote it down. The Dodgers left Brooklyn in 1957. They did not come back to New York until 1962, and they came to play the expansion of New York Mets. They went to the old polo grounds in New York. They played a doubleheader, and they beat the Mets. They were a terrible team, 13 to nothing and 6-5. to But in the doubleheader, Maury Wills had two home runs, one from the left side, one from the right side. And among other things, one of the two, a home run inside the park. It was quite a return to New York. And with that, let's go back to this one. And... Uh, it just made me think, you know, is there really anything else other than the script across the check that still connect the L.A. team to Brooklyn like listening to Vince Scully? Yeah, that is, uh, you know, I think it would be amazing enough if Vince Scully was what connected the Dodgers of right now to the Dodgers who moved to Los Angeles, the Dodgers who... Of Vin Scully, excuse me, of Lori Wills, of Sandy Koufax, Tommy Davis, and Willie Davis, and those great teams in the 60s, those teams that, that used to uh, come into uh, first the Polo Grounds, then Shea Stadium, and hammer the Mets. Uh, that would be amazing unto itself. And instead, you have even more of that because Vin Scully, you know, as, as uh, I'm sure you've talked about many times, you know, was the voice of the Dodgers or one of the voices of the Dodgers in Ebbets Field. And, uh, you know, it, it's a, a beautiful thing to behold as a baseball fan, whether you're a Dodger fan or not, not not just because he's Vin Scully and not just because of the Dodgers, but to have somebody who remains the institutional memory of a team, of a franchise, of a sport, the way he does. And, I, I think it's it's sort of appropriate uh, you bring up Vin Scully in the wake of last night's Mets Phillies 14 inning game. Hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking 14 innings is long, but it, it shouldn't be that long because right. you know, we know as Mets fans that there have been much longer games. But because the, for whatever reason the game is played so slowly now, it's something that's obviously been talked about uh, a lot. Uh, Howie and Josh were have been talking yeah, about it all week. Yeah, and then it certainly came up on television where I was watching. And, you know, we, we just recently came off a Met-Dodger game that went four hours and eight minutes, and this is a nine-inning game. Missed the record by that much. 
Yeah, it was it was it was, it was almost a nine inning franchise record, and so you know a fourteen inning game. It's long, but it doesn't have to be, go on forever. But last night's went on for five and a half hours, and it went on so long that a game that started on May 30th, 2014, continued into May 31st, 2014. And the, the reason I found that remarkable, I mean, games have gone past midnight, but the, the reason it, it, it caught my notice around 11.45 that, that this was uh, on the verge of happening was it was 50 years ago today, May 31st, 1964, that the Mets and Giants played you know, quite possibly the most famous doubleheader in Mets history, one of the most famous doubleheaders probably of, of the, uh, the post-war era, not so much because of the first game of the doubleheader, but because of the second, which won 23 innings and seven hours and I believe, well, I'm not, not going to quote the exact number, but it was more than seven hours. I want to say seven hours and 23 minutes, but I might just be taking the 23 innings and applying it to the minutes. But I know it, it set the record, and it was one of the most, you know, when people talk about, you know, when people talk about the Mets and 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 their daffiness, and then they sort of, you know, when they kind of took up the legacy of the Dodgers, daffiness boys, uh, three men on third, and all that, um, you know, that, that those were the polo grounds years. But you know, any hope that the Mets were going to immediately shake off that kind of image when they got to Shea Stadium was pretty much dashed by that doubleheader 50 years ago today. <laughs> and, and and just you know, in brief, you know, the Mets were down six to one. They came back. They tied it six to six. And it, it's a game that went on so long that uh, Willie Mays wound up playing shortstop, I believe, for the only time in his career for the wow. Giants because so many moves had to be made. Uh, pitching staffs weren't quite as depleted as they are today, so there, there, you know, there was no version of Anthony Wrecker warming up in the bullpen as there was last night, no catcher. But um, again, I'm, I'm not looking at the box score, but both Larry Bernarth and Galen Cisco, two long relievers for the Mets, went I think respectively something like seven and nine innings. Um, Young Gaylord Perry ended up going nine or ten innings for the Giants. There was a triple play in the middle of the, the Mets turned to triple play for good. You know, if he, if you weren't scuffing the ball or, or doctoring the ball, he would have been out the second. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, so you you had a lot going on. Orlando Sabeda hits into a triple play, and the game goes on for 23 innings. And famously enough, um, you know, the, it moved. In, it was a Sunday doubleheader. It moves into prime time because, you know, the second game began, I don't know, probably toward 4 o'clock. And uh, What's My Line was on CBS. Huh? And, you know, the the host of What's My Line came on and said, you know, I've been backstage watching a most remarkable baseball game. And uh, with that, uh, you could hear the sounds of, of the channel clickers <laughs> moving across the New York area. Anybody who wasn't already watching the Met game for, on Channel uh, 9 uh, was now, thanks to uh, thanks and this to the endorsement from What's My Line. And I guess I bring all of this up. And I'm it was 64. Way, yeah, yes, uh, exactly 50 years ago today. And the reason I bring all of this up, um, and, and by the way, the Mets lost, of course, 8-6 uh, to six <laughs> in 23 innings, uh, despite everybody's best efforts, is... Um, I was thinking toward the end of last night's game, and I, I, I can't blame you know Gar- Gary Cohn, uh, Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling for not really you know uh, sitting around talking about this. Maybe they'll mention it today because they they had a, a game themselves on their hands. Uh, you know, it was mentioned that, it would, that 
the 50th anniversary came up as a this date in after midnight. But it, it reminded me how much I miss Ralph Kiner mm. because he was there, and the Mets franchise you know, has existed in living memory, all of it in living memory of, of, of many of its fans, and even its, you know, its earliest days were always kept alive because Ralph Kiner and Bob Murphy were on the scene for so long, Bob Murphy for 42 seasons, Ralph Kiner for 52 seasons, you know, that they could always give first-hand descriptions of what happened. I mean, right. these the stories would become, you know, I'm, I'm sure the stories, you know, morphed a little bit over years into legend as, as things will, but it never seemed that far away from where we were sitting because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Ralph was there or Bob was there. Uh, you know, Lindsay was there, but you know, Lindsay left the Mets after 1978, and it really drove home last night that that this, this game, this doubleheader, which was a staple of the Met canon, if you will, for you know as long as I can remember, from you know, ni- you know, I started watching the Mets in 1969, and and, and this doubleheader is, was always referenced as soon as any game went past, you know, 11 innings, let's say. Um, it's kind of it's kind of the game that gave the Mets and Shea Stadium their baptism. I, you know, it was maybe maybe it was like the thirteenth, fourteenth game the Mets ever played at Shea Stadium. I, I looked it up last night. I forget, but um, you know, this was the first quote unquote wacky one. This was the one that proved the Mets were the Mets. And you know, a few weeks later, they would they would you know, suffer a perfect game at the hands of Jim Bunning, which sort of cemented the legacy. Yeah, right. I suppose that they were still the Mets, but, but that's more a matter of somebody. Succeeding in Bunning's case here, it was a matter of somehow the, the Mets kind of being futile, and uh, you know you, you you talk about uh, you use the word incarnate. You know, the, to me the the Met incarnate is Ed Cranepool. Ed Cranepool kind of cemented his legacy that day because he had come up from Buffalo. He had been up and down since uh, you know making the team late in the '62 season. He had just been called up after playing a doubleheader in Buffalo, driving all night to get to New York. This was from Saturday to Sunday. Sounds like Nick Black, right? Yeah, he's, he's playing the entire doubleheader on Sunday, and he's you know always told the story. He said, "Boy, if the game had just gone half an hour longer, I would have played into June because it was May 31st. I would have played two months." Right. And um, you know, the, those are the sorts of of stories and legacy that's kind of kept alive by by broadcasters who were there and players who were there and reporters who were there and they're just you know fewer and fewer of those guys just because of time and uh, what it does and that's why to bring it all the way back to Vin Scully and Maury Wills and the story about 1962 and, and how Vin Scully remains that connection to Brooklyn uh, you know it's a precious thing and uh, you know the, the Dodger fan who's paying attention or the baseball fan who has MLB package and is paying attention is, is is pretty lucky to be able to have that and you know well, like I said last night I, I no no no, uh, no disregard for our, our current wonderful announcers at all but uh, I kind of missed having Ralph Kiner or whether he was going to be on last night which he wouldn't have been but you know the fact that he would he would have been on eventually on a Sunday and probably talked about that doubleheader and right. he would have said. Pretty much the same thing he's said, you know, 400 times, but you loved hearing it, and it is always like a little extra something. So, uh, you know, it, it's weird when you realize that there has to be, you know, there's a, another generation that has to keep stories like these alive, whether it's the Mets, whether it's the Dodgers, the Giants, whatever franchise. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 
sooner or later it, it falls to everybody to pass it on. But so, uh, and you know we we can enhance with our research and 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 you know with, with, that we care about it and and make try to make it come alive. But it's it's really something when the, the guy who was there broadcasting Maury Wills going into the polo grounds and hitting an inside the park home run can still talk about it 52 years later. And what's so interesting about that is the fact that, um, you know, it was obviously 1964. It wasn't too many years since the Giants and the Dodgers had left. And, you know, like you said, that uh, I was just watching this interesting, uh, this remarkable baseball game, uh, the guy the guy said on, um, what was it, What's My Line? What's My Line. Right. And, you, you know, you wonder whether there's all these, you hear about some people who either became Met fans uh very, you know, some became Yankee fans. Some did, you know. I, I have come across uh, Dodger fans who then just started living for the Yankees, which is weird. I, I, I wonder about their their Dodger heritage and legacy, <laughs> the fact that they picked up on that. But uh, you wonder whether there were a lot of fans that day who hadn't paid attention to baseball in a very long time. Because you had the Giants in town, you know, this wasn't just the, the Mets going into yeah, this was a 23-inning game. There were 57,000 people at that doubleheader when it started. Oh, oh wow, yeah. There, there weren't nearly as many when it was over, but this was the, you know, the first weekend that the Giants had come in. The Giants were still a draw. They had Willie Mays, which you know. Just, right. There were 20 after this game. After this game, they were 26-17, and obviously they didn't win the the pennant that year. Um, the Phillies botched the pennant to go back to the Phillies, uh, but it it is an interesting. Uh, thing to uh to re, uh re- remember i'm not sure whether google um is is kind of uh, uh obviously plays into your your uh history uh probably considering i'm signed in so the first thing that came up when i typed in may 31st 1964 is this very game i don't know whether that's just anybody even if i, I i'm not always on met stuff and dodger stuff and 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 baseball stuff in general whether other people are typing it in May 31st, 1964, that's the first thing that comes up. Uh, but it seems to be what the Internet uh, wants and brings you when, uh, when clicking that. Now, um, you know, we're talking about uh, the National League New York legacy, and, and we're talking about the, the, the way back and Vince Scully. What's interesting right now is that I'm watching I, I, the only game on currently uh, at 12.05 is the Nationals and the Rangers. And what's so interesting about this game is that the Rangers, of course, used to be the second incarnation of the Senators. And, you know, it's completely different considering, you know, with the Giants and the Dodgers, you you have uh, the same franchise nickname across the chest when they come into town. Uh, But, you know, I'm guessing that there's not uh, old-timers at this game right now that are – uh, reminiscing about, I remember this franchise, <laughs> you know, the that, yeah, same that, way that, that the Giants and Dodgers do it. I've, I've often wondered about that. I've wondered if anybody, you know, sat in St. Louis for how many years and continued to root for the Orioles because they were the Browns, or how many, yeah, you know, how, how many uh, Texas Rangers fans lived in the Washington, D.C. area or before right. they, they gave up completely. I think it is different if you feel abandoned versus you feel some sort of connection. I mean, certainly the uh, the Washington Nationals were the Montreal Expos who were undergoing a small revival of their own this year. 
between you know various uh, you know, events that have been, uh, been were held up in Montreal and the publication of a of a promising uh, new book about the Expos. I haven't gone around reading yet, but um, you know it's I, I I think when they when they take a team away from you and 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 take away the whole concept of the team, it's probably tougher than when the Dodgers and Giants took two very famous names and you know kept them on the scene and they were still you know two of the top teams in baseball you know starting in 1958 I mean they didn't win anything in 58 but you know that they were still both teams you know could not have been a bigger deal when they came back to New York in 62 and I I always uh, enjoy uh what I've listened to a uh, broadcast it was the the, the first Met Giant game at the Polo Ground. Somebody gave me a copy of several years ago, uh, the radio call, the Mets call. And at the beginning, there is so much cheering for the Giants, and by mm. the end, most of the cheering is for the Mets. <laughs> and the Mets are getting their, their their heads handed to them because it was 1962, and it was one of those 17-1 to type of scores. 17-4 uh, it might have been. But, uh, Sounds about right. <laughs> It, it uh, yeah, but it 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 took a while to uh, completely convert people, but uh, yeah, not 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 to go too far off track. Um, yes, yeah, as, as you know. Hey, you know we're we're tangenting today. It's it's fine. Today's a little fine. Well, you know as you know, I, 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 as you know, uh, you know I've, I've been involved in a couple of the the giant historical societies over the years because I've always been kind of uh, you know mesmerized by the idea of the New York Giants. And you know those guys take you know are are, are very <laughs> thrilled in in the last few years because the San Francisco Giants, who most of these guys never gave up on, uh, probably because the name remained the same. If they had gone and become the San Francisco Seals, I, I and you know had maintained Willie Mays and brought up Willie McCovey and Orlando Cepeda, somehow I don't think it would have been the same. But anyway, they 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 like to say how uh, you know. The, the the fact that, uh, that the Giants, the current, the modern, the modern day Giants organization recognizes them, and and how uh, you know uh, you don't see the Dodgers doing this for the Brooklyn fans, <laughs> and, right? And, right. And it's, uh, it's you know, true. I mean, well, you know, I I I've stated it a bunch of times. It seems as if the Giant fans were less offended, uh, you know, because with the Dodgers you had you had a, a community in Brooklyn. Um, you know, that was very tight-knit and, and, and saw it as family, uh, you know, kind of the way I, I, I was just talking about it on Banner Day, how it's such a family affair uh, going to, uh, you know, that was my first Banner Day last week, and it, it felt, you know, just very close-knit and, and uh, like family. And yeah, I, th- I think when, uh, you know, when uh just just to grab that that concept for a second if i could uh you know when they brought banner day back a couple of years ago it you know to just uh, as as background you know banner day a staple of mets life from 1963 to 1996 and it was certainly not what it was by the mid 90s uh, i think that was mostly because of the dissolution of the doubleheader as a regular Sunday thing because they always schedule mm. between games of a doubleheader and partly because the Mets were lousy and kind of fans were disaffected in general and they stopped promoting it anyway. You know, the Banner Day goes away for the better part of 16 years and, you know, along came 
people like me, although certainly it, was, it wasn't me leading the charge uh, by any means, uh, but I wrote about it. A lot of bloggers wrote about it. And finally, the Mets were convinced to bring Banner Day back. And I remember one of the hesitations from Met management was, you know, oh, in so many words, people are going to write mean things about us, and we're going to have to watch their language. And, you know, to which I countered, I think you, this is what you experience when you bring up family, is that you don't go to the trouble of creating something like a banner and showing up, you know, at the, uh, as, as, as our friend Taron Cooper would put it, at the crack of ass, as they say, <laughs> and, uh, to, uh, to parade and to, uh, you know, to, to, to express an, an opinion on the field where your team plays because you want to, you know, right sell the team or, you know, bleep the, the will ponds or whatever. You're just not going right, to Right, but I'm, uh, you know, is, is the idea that uh, you're going to let these people on the field anyway? I mean, you you know, you're you're monitoring this at the beginning. You're checking yeah. these banners. So it, it, it's like, even yeah. if it's only like, I guess they they were afraid that, you know, 1,500 people would come and only five would be, uh, you know, bring the kids up or whatever. Well, it's, you know, again, it's... It, 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 bring think, up, bring up the babies. I think that, that the, he, the hesitation showed sort of uh, the disconnect between uh, Mets ownership and the people who run the team uh, versus, you know, how the fans truly feel about, you know, family, about the Mets. Uh, and their family, how it all—it's all one in our minds. And you, again, you, you, yes, there are there are always going to be people who kind of you know sneak the uh, the uh, sh- sh- shall we say um, ir- ir- irreverent <laughs> message onto a banner. But um, you know, it's a celebration of, of of love, and it's a celebration of family. Whether you know it's literally your family or the, the family connection you feel to your team, and I, I think there's you know. I, I think by by keeping the names Dodgers and Giants, uh, right, you know, kept those who were dis- who were emotionally predisposed to want to feel at least that they were still in the family, to feel you know that it was okay, that it was to say that that's you know we're still related. It's a, we're now distant cousins because you're in California, right? But uh, you know, I I still recognize you. I, I I will still see you at the family reunions when you come around. In some cases, those family reunions have to take place in Philadelphia because uh, there was no place for these guys to come back. And uh, by '62, they they could take place in New York. And there are some people who said, you know, you're not my family anymore. I disown you forever because you disowned me, and that was perfectly reasonable. That's why they're Mets. Exactly, and like I, you know, like I was saying, um, it seems as if they were more offended. Uh, the Dodger fans were, you know, because the, the Dodgers were at the time. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. They were the most profitable uh, franchise in baseball, even above the Yankees. That's that's the phrase I've I've always heard applied to it. I mean, I don't know how that was was figured out, but that, that's always uh, been said about them. That, that you know there were. It wasn't a matter that they weren't making money. It's that they could. Right. They weren't. They weren't going to be. I guess if you wanted to look at it from the O'Malley perspective, they weren't going to be making money forever, or they weren't going to be the most profitable forever. And you know, he wanted an upgrade. And uh, he wanted the city to himself. He wanted. He wanted a city to himself. Yeah. You know, a, a big way that I look at it, and uh, you know, because the, the the Giants, they were not making money. They no, they had been. They weren't winning, and they they hadn't been uh, getting crowds there for a, a while. Yeah, I mean the, the the famous quote that I'm sure you've come across was uh, you know when they announced the uh, 
plans to move, and a reporter asked uh, Horace Stone, you know, what about the kids? And uh, the answer was, I feel bad for the kids, but I haven't seen many of their dads lately. Right. And, you know, nobody was coming out to the polo grounds. And, you know, again, without veering off too deeply into that, you know, supposedly the Giants were looking at, uh, at Minneapolis, and uh, instead, you know, Walter O'Malley said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's, let's both go to California because it would be better for both of us. So on, you know, again, a, it is sort of unfathomable to get to the very, the very root of all of this, uh, you know, wh- wh- why this is a, uh, a story uh, that you've been pursuing. Is, you know, it's unfathomable that you could take two teams away from the greatest city in the world, the, the greatest rivalry taken away from the greatest city in the world, one that had 8 million people or whatever the, the population was in 1957, and certainly, you know, certainly enough to, to support two storied traditions in Brooklyn and in Manhattan. But it happened. Uh, yeah, and and you know, talking about the rivalry, the greatest rivalry in sports. Um, you know, the reason they went to San Francisco was because Walter O'Malley is a shrewd businessman, and he, he, you know, he heard that they were thinking about Minneapolis, and he knew that would be bad for their business because, you, you know, he looked he looked at California. He said, well, you know, what would be the natural city rivalry? And he told Horace Sonam, why don't you look into San Francisco? Yeah, and in the uh, you know also he knew that well, nationally team you know, he needed nationally teams to come out there, and yeah, come right. out just to Los Angeles uh, really reminds me of something I was reading this week. I guess because the Mets are on the road for most of this month, which is sort of unusual. Um, somehow the subject of, of when there used to be a team in Hawaii. I think it was a Dodger uh, minor league franchise that was in Hawaii for many years. Terry Collins was remembering playing in in those days as a minor leaguer and talked about how teams would schedule 10-game road trips from the Pacific Coast League out to Hawaii because, you know, you can't just keep you know, going out there, can't take the bus three times a year right. to Honolulu. And you, you know, talked about how, uh, you know, teams would come out, they would uh, win the first two games, and they'd lose the next eight because they got distracted. But, you know, you, <laughs> I, I, think, I think when, um, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't researched this, but I think when the Angels uh, first set up shop in Los Angeles, they had a similar type of setup because there was nobody on the West Coast besides them in the American League. And teams, you know, they they would play like three week homestands. I don't know if, if you know, because teams weren't going to come out there all that often. So uh, it's definitely a logistical thing. So it was, you know, one more piece of the, uh, if you want to call it evil, the evil O'Malley brilliance, knowing that, uh, <laughs> you know, you you had to have a uh, something to fit the schedule. Obviously, you, you had to have a rivalry. You know, it was good for the, it was good for the Dodgers and it was good for the Giants. It's interesting to think that if they'd gone to Minneapolis, would have, you know, you had the the great giant brave rivalry of the upper at, at, at that point, the Dodgers need to just move to St. Paul. I mean, yeah, like you know, if, that was... if that were if that were the case, you just needed that whole that whole dynamic across the river again. Yeah, that would have. And, and, <laughs> and if, if, if Minneapolis St. Paul could have supported both the Dodgers and the Giants, well, you know, then Minneapolis St. Paul would have been the center of the universe, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> right? I think uh, you know, I think LA and San Francisco, they uh, eventually. Uh, well, once once the Giants got themselves a real ballpark, which only took about forty two years, um, right? Uh, I think it, it all worked out for both sides. 
And I mean, not, I, I, I don't. I don't say that out of any sense of betraying New York. I just mean the California version, of course. So I'm I'm going to be out there next weekend for the uh, Mets and the Giants, and, oh, and I'm certain that I will be getting in touch with the uh, Preservation Society and most likely doing a podcast uh, pregame outside on location over there. Um, I, it, when I was out there in February, I walked the perimeter with uh, um, Steve Rothschild. Uh, Mo Resner was on the podcast, and um, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh God, how am I? I oh yeah, and Ed uh, and uh, Mr. Mintz, Gary Mintz. Uh, oh. Not not Ed Logan. Ed Logan wasn't able to call in, but uh, uh, Gary called in as well, and we had a, a fine time talking about the Giants franchise while walking the perimeter of the ballpark that I look forward to seeing next week. Um, but but let's let's go back to uh, Philadelphia. Uh, if you're going, to, if you're going to make us okay, let's go to Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you were you were talking about, um, you know, you you brought it back up about Philadelphia. How for a while that was the only place that uh, it, it, within the vicinity that you could go see the Dodgers and the Giants again. Um, when you think of of the rivalry, the just the natural rivalry that New York and Philadelphia have because of the the, the uh, uh, geography. Um, and you think about that in baseball context. What are, what are some of the first things that come to your mind when it comes to the, the legacy of National League New York, uh, you know, the legacy of the National League in New York and its rival with Philadelphia? Well, you know, cer- certainly geography didn't help the, uh, you know, 90 miles or whatever, whatever it is officially. Um, you know, because the Giants and Dodgers had each other, it's not like, you know, you really needed a, another team <laughs> to step in as a uh, a bitter rival. But you know, in those days, everybody played each other so often. What was it, 22 times against uh, seven opponents? So you know, I, I guess in a sense, you, you got to know the other team pretty well. And when it was an era where there was you know, no fraternization and that sort of thing, you know, everybody could be a little chippy. Um, just, just, just to... Uh, Pull it closer to us in in uh, in time, and then to kind of put, push back to that period. Um, you know, I was always fascinated as a kid <clears throat> when you know people talked about uh, you know New York and Boston in terms of baseball, and you know what a bitter rivalry that was. And you know, when I was a kid, that was only you know reheating up again when you had both the Yankees and Red Sox uh, at the top of their games. I wondered why it wasn't really the same between the Mets and the Phillies. I mean, it was one thing for me to sit and watch on, on TV and decide I hated the Phillies because they played the Mets a lot and they were beating the Mets a lot at that point. But um, there's, it, it probably didn't help that, that neither team was ever good at the same time, There was like, except for maybe two seasons in the mid-'70s. And now we're both bad again. <laughs> yeah, and now, they, and, and now they both, uh, they're both bringing up the rear of the uh, National League East. And you didn't really have a Mets-Philly rivalry of, of any real, lasting, enduring proportion until 2007. I mean, you know, certainly uh, one, one team could annoy the other, but it, it never really mattered in the standings. Um, yet you go back, and again, you know, we, there, there were great you know, again, you know, great games between all, all, all pairs of teams, I suppose, but, you know, we, we mentioned the, uh, the Jim Bunning game was kind of the... Uh, you know the the touchstone for for Met Philly games in the early years because you know but but I was you know one team winning and one team losing by a lot one team that seemed to be on its way for glory and then you know crashed and one team that was nowhere near it yet but um, you know you go back to before the Mets and 
before 1964 when the Phillies had their brief revival and that wouldn't really be matched again until they they started getting it going by the mid to late 70s. Um, The Phillies played an interesting role in the Dodgers story, probably more so than the Giants story. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a whole lot of giant Philly uh, dramatic moments. The, The team that always comes to mind where both the Dodgers and Giants are concerned, who isn't each other, is the Cardinals, because the Cardinals mm-hmm. have gotten involved in some, you know, in the earlier years, uh, in in their fortunes and gotten in their way. Um, and then, you know, the Cubs way back at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, where the Giants were concerned. So I'll just get back to the Phillies. Uh, you know, the, the Phillies were having one of their moments, uh, the late 40s, the early 50s, uh, one of their rare moments, because they were a terrible team. And yeah. Terrible in the way that, you know, we think of, you know, a seven-game winning streak notwithstanding, that we think of the Astros right now, um, that we, th- we thought of the Pirates for 20 years. Well, yeah, you know, was, I mean, they, they were one of the worst teams. They, they were not only one of the worst teams in a baseball record standpoint, but they were one of the least popular, least loved. I mean, I, I have somewhere in, in here, I have a... a uh, an anthology of uh, of writings about the Phillies, or they're one of those franchises that's always interested me for some reason, probably because of the proximity. And I think there, there's uh, an, essay, an essay suggesting, from the standpoint of uh, somebody in Philadelphia, why don't they just get rid of the Phillies? This is like from, from like the 1930s or something. <laughs> but, and, and the Athletics were eventually are the ones. Yeah, that yeah. I mean, you, you know, but the, the Athletics have had had. You know, an incredible legacy of success until you know money got the best of Connie Mack. The you know the the, the A's were an American League dynasty in the early part of the 20th century, and then they had like a, a second go around uh, right around right before the depression kicked in. So, and that, that's really you know that's really what killed them. Um, the Phillies had none of that. The Phillies had one tenant for 50 years in 1915, and they were swept. Uh, or I think they, they might have lost five games in 1915. But um, and then anyway, just to get back to the uh, to more or less the subject of, of, of this podcast, um, you know, the, the the Phillies were reviving in the late 40s, and it just happened to come into historical conflict in both baseball and I suppose societal. Uh, and so with, the, with that of the Dodgers, because, uh, you know, they, they were both trying to win the same pennants for once. And, you know, it, it came to a head really, uh, from a dual standpoint, 1950, when, you know, the, uh, the Wiz Kids, uh, 1950 Phillies, uh, had to hold off the Dodgers very late in the season. And then 51, where the Dodgers had to go down to Philadelphia and beat the uh, the Phillies to uh, you know hope for a tie to get them to the one the three game playoff against the Giants in '51 and of course for anybody who saw the movie '42 last year uh, they you know you you had not exactly the warmest of greetings for Jackie Robinson mm-hmm. uh, from the Phillies organization from the Phillies manager made out to be a villain in the movie and by all his you know for whatever liberties they they took with that I movie. forget what the I don't think that was one of them he was great. He, I, 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 no, I was saying yeah. I forget the actor's name. Oh yeah, I mean you know you really you really hated yeah. the movie, which I'm pretty sure was the idea, and you know it was a despicable, uh, a despicable historical act. 
on that guy's part. And you know, I mean, they they restaged the the, the taking of the the awkward photo between uh, you know, Ben Chapman, the racist manager, and Jackie Robinson, and uh, you know that that was the Phillies in those days. So at least you know that that was about as much as they accomplished being the villains. So, uh, but you know, there there was a. Uh, I believe it was Dick Sisler of the Phillies hits hits a dramatic home run on the last day of the 1950 season to clinch the pennant and put the Whiz Kids into their first World Series in 35 years. And it does it against the Dodgers, and then you know you have I think it was Jackie Robinson of all people getting the big home run in Philadelphia. In I believe it was called Connie Mack Stadium by then. It had been known as Shy Park. And, and they had to play one game. It looks like, or. Um, or well, it's because it was a uh, 155 games. Well, well, they both played 154. I mean, teams played 154 games in those years. Right. Um, so what I'm wondering. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, that was game 154. I mean, to, to me, what, what what's always interested me is that so you think while, that's a ty- you think that's a typo? Well, you know what it might have been is that in those days, and, and technically it could still happen, but it never happens anymore. Um, Game numbers also counted the ties that weren't replayed because, you know, they'd be written uh, out. Ah, right, right. So right. For, for just, just, just as an example, we were talking about 1964 before. The Mets played well, – actually, it was 65, so never mind. But in 1965, the Mets played 164 games. But it was 160 you – know, their record reflected 162 games. Deals where all the statistics count, but they don't go into the standings is all. Uh, you haven't you haven't had a game like that at least for the Mets that have not played a game like that since 1981. So where where they played that was a strike year. They played 105 games, but when you look at their composite record, they played 103 games that go into the standings. So that's why you would see game 150. Well, something was rescheduled. It's not like today where they suspend well, things and all that. What's so but, remarkable is that in the last looking at the schedule, uh, the Dodgers played four doubleheaders within the last 10 games of the season. So so four of those games, uh, uh, I'm sorry, eight of those games were, were uh, played on, you know, two, I, I, I'm completely blanking on how to actually phrase this, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you had, you had September 25th doubleheader, September 27th doubleheader, September 28th doubleheader, and a September 29th doubleheader. Uh, the Giants, uh, the Boston Bees, I believe at the time. I might uh, they, be were, they, were, they were the Braves again. They were, they were the Braves again. They were yeah. the Braves again. Uh, and then they did finish with two against Philly. Uh, had they won wait, wait, that wait, last wait. game? I'm, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at the schedule now, and it was you know it was a three game series: a, a uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday in Philadelphia. Lost on Friday. Newcomb won on Saturday, and then they won the 14 inning game on Sunday. Which is what catapulted the Dodgers into a after blowing the lead, uh, catapulted them into that three-game playoff. And Jackie Robinson hit the uh, the home run at the top of the 14th. Exactly. And uh, yeah, they uh, they you know a lot of games piled up at the end certainly. And uh, well, it looks, well, it looks I, like I, it was a weak National League, considering that the Dodgers were two games out at 89 and 65. When you, you think about it, back in those days, I mean, people were generally winning the pennant with 95 to 100. 100 yeah, well, you know, the, the Dodgers were, you know, had, had been blowing away everybody until the Giants, uh, you know, p- picked up the pace. So I, I, uh, I never really thought about the rest of the league, but right, right, I know. Yeah, we forget, we forget about. Oh yeah, yeah there were there were uh, six all, other teams. Yeah, so they, 
Yes, there were six other teams, but uh, nobody ever thinks about them. But what was always fascinating about me about about that that day that you know, while the Dodgers are down in nearby Philadelphia, close enough for their fans to go to the games. The Giants are in Boston, which in pre-interleague days uh, was was common because the Braves were in Boston forever. But it just fascinates me that there was a National League team in Boston um, that teams from New York took road trips that took them north. You know, other than Montreal, which is no longer on the Mets' schedule, you don't have that anymore. I mean, you go west and maybe you go northwest, but. Uh, that that was you know think think about a quadrant of the United States, no more than what maybe 300 miles separating Boston and Philadelphia, and you had four teams playing each other constantly, and you know again twice in New York baseball history, uh, you know the Braves play an outsize part or at least a trip from Boston plays an outside part in, 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 in the legend. You know, in 1941, the Dodgers clinch at Braves Field, and they're taking a train back, and, and uh, you may have heard the story, Larry McPhail is, is, you know, gets word to the train that it, it should stop at 125th Street to let him on. So when the Dodgers get off at, uh, at Grand Central, and there's going to be this big celebration. He wants to be there, and Leo DeRocher says, "Keep going." Tell you know, it's funny because he had no idea that Larry. He didn't know any of that. Uh, yeah. that Larry McPhail was on the platform. Yeah, but so of course, Larry McPhail thinks it's a slight against him. Yeah, so you know, he fires DeRocher, which doesn't take, and all of that. And <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And then you have you know, uh, ten years later, as the Giants are are trying to complete this remarkable comeback. That the only you know, they they've won in Boston, and the only thing that they need is for the Phillies to hold on in Philadelphia against the Dodgers, and they're listening on the train. And I always wondered, like, how, how did that work? I mean, were, were, were you know games broadcast? Uh, you know, were they able to pick up the Dodger uh, feed or whatever? And I, I guess you know, in those days, you know, lots of baseball was on the radio and broadcast by network. So I got you know, I got you know, you're just reminding me that I should get a radio uh, historian. Um, to be able to maybe tell us whether somebody, if it was an important game, would pick it up. Maybe it was it was slightly syndicated. Yeah, there were, there were yeah there were lots of you know games of the day and the Mutual Network and the Liberty Network, and uh, there actually is I can give this to you off the air, but I mean there there is somebody who wrote a fantastic book about 15 years ago called uh, you know New New York Radio Sports, and it covers all of that type of stuff. Uh, written by a, a not not the David Halberstam who is you know, super famous uh, who's, who's no longer with us, but David J Halberstam who's a, a New York radio historian who I, I believe uh, would would still be around. So I could, you know talk about that with you later. But um, anyway, you know it was on that it was on a train uh, from Boston where National League teams went that uh, the Giants learned there was going to be a three game playoff and uh, I. I you know, visited Boston you know, ostensibly to see the Red Sox about 15 years ago, back you know, in the, the heart of the, uh, the Pedro Martinez era, and I took a trip, a side trip uh, that morning to the side of Braves Field, which still exists uh, as re- repurposed as Nickerson Field, or it may, it may have a different name by now, um, at Boston University. Oh, wow. 
within walking distance of Fenway Park. So I have no, I did not know that. So yeah, so those, they were, the, it's, 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 it's still the same grandstand, or that yeah, the, the grandstand is still oh, there. Wow. You go out, you go outside the the ticket booths are now like the campus police uh, precincts. Right. So there's like and and there's a plaque, you know, kind of you know tucked away, sort of like you know when you go up to the polo grounds or you go to Abbott's Field and you look for yeah. uh, some evidence. And it was just this sort of you know. You know, you know that that sense of you know, that there are ghosts among us uh, type of thing. The ghosts of National League baseball uh, were, were very were very much out in force that Saturday morning in 1999. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, and, and again, this was a this was a stop on the uh, on the National League circuit in 1951, and it had been for uh, since the 1870s, really. And, and which is not yeah, not that far off, really. Yeah, well, whenever well, whenever you watch, uh, I don't know if they still have it on the uh, fence at Turner Field, but for a few years. They had this big banner that said "Longest Continuously Operated Franchise in Baseball History." Cause yeah, talked, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because right, yeah, I know. The, <laughs> you know, the Braves date back to 1871, as uh, you know, when they were the Boston Braves or whatever name they, they names that they switched to over the years, like the Boston Bees for a few years during the Casey Stengel reign of error up there. But uh, it's still the same franchise. It's not, you know. It, so you know, they came two years later than the Cincinnati Red Stockings, but the Cincinnati Red Stockings were not the Cincinnati, or were not the Cincinnati Reds that we know right. today. It's a different franchise. So they, they've got that going for them. So congratulations, Braves. Yeah, about um, applause. But you know, the, again, again, we're talking 1871 to 1952. So that's a total of 82 seasons. Which is nothing to sneeze at because you know we, we we sit here and we talk about the Giants and Dodgers and their New York legacy. There's a huge boss, brave legacy in Boston. I don't, I don't know, and I, I think that there has been a, a Boston Brave Society and that sort of thing. But uh, I imagine that uh, it's purely my imagination because I really don't know. You know, I, I imagine that uh, things pretty every, everybody pretty much uh, you know. Tucked their allegiance into the Red Sox, uh, you know, over yeah. time. Just like they, you know, St. Louis, everybody be- became a Cardinal fan, and uh, Philadelphia, everybody became a Phillies fan, as opposed to uh, carrying torches for the A's or the Browns. Although I, I do seem to remember that when when interleague was still a novelty, it was kind of a big deal that the Braves had gone back to play in Fenway Park. Right. At that at that point, it was still you know like forty six, forty seven years. Since they left, there were probably some old timers who, uh, and probably still are. Um, and I, I, sh- I shouldn't throw around the word old timers because I'm getting up there, but um, there are probably some people who remembered uh, back in the day, uh, maybe still grew up with the Braves as a Boston team, as, as there you know, probably were in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, with the 15 or so years that they were there, 13 years. It, it's just not. It's not clearly not the same dynamic as yeah. this town. Yeah, because I, I think the difference is, you know, I mean, in Boston, for example, when you hear about the Jimmy Fund, you know, which is the uh, the prime charity of the Red Sox, and you know, you see Ted Williams supporting it all those years, and you just associate it with the Red Sox. It was the Braves who started that. Oh wow! <laughs> and the Red Sox just, you know, the Red Sox adopted it. Because um, it was a Boston, it wasn't, it wasn't a franchise. It wasn't. Yeah, but it was. It was the Braves who really carried the ball, so to speak, and was and the and the Red Sox and Tom Yawkey, you know, picked you know picked it up and supported it. It became synonymous with them because you know there were no longer any Braves to uh, to do anything about it. And you know, I mean, and there there have been moments in all of these cities, whether it was A's and Phillies, Browns and Cardinals, Red Sox and Braves, where the team that left had the advantage in one way or another. I mean, for years the the Cardinals. Although I don't think they were ever 
appreciably less popular than the Browns, uh, or at least that they hadn't been for decades, but they leased, you know, Sportsman's Park from the Browns. So, you know, they were the tenants, and when things weren't going well for them, uh, supposedly they looked into moving out of St. Louis, which is something it's hard to imagine. Right. So, but, but I think, you know, eventually in all of those cases, um, you know, the, the fan support had dried up to such an extent for the A's, for the Browns, for the Braves, that it probably wasn't that hard for the majority of their what was left of their fan bases to kind of they, they either fell away or they fell into the team that remained. And as we know, as every New York National League fan loves to point out, Yankee attendance went down in 1958, <laughs> and uh, there, there, there was, un- unlike in those cities where the alternative, if you will, the remaining team was a perfectly acceptable you know, option. Uh, the Yankees, uh, for you know, be- because perhaps just who the Yankees were, in both a positive and a negative, were never going to do it. Right, because the, the Yankees uh, have been that you know perceived that way. I would say basically. Like it, it, you know, they won two world championships in um, in the twenties. They were in a bunch of world series, of course, in the twenties. But it wasn't the way it it, it occurred. I mean, their first, I, I would say, their first real big dynasty was the the Joe DiMaggio's first four years. Yeah, well, I they mean, won thirty six through forty. The the Yankees won. Um, oh, and, and really, before we move on, I just want to clarify that I was talking about 1950. I'm sorry that I didn't mention. Oh, okay. okay. But I think you and I, when I when I was looking over Game 155. Oh, okay. I was looking at because uh, I believe you were talking about 51. I was talking about 51. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the the thing about the the, the Yankees in, in brief. I mean, they we it's hard for us to picture it because they've always been the imperial team in one way or another. Uh, both in our lifetimes and you know, in popular imagination, but you know the Yankees who established themselves as you know the dynasty, the first the, the dynasty. You know they were the usurpers. <laughs> they were they they were taking New York away from the Giants, <laughs> um, yep. and the team that you know came along. You know. Two words, Babe Ruth. That's basically where where, where, exactly. where it started. You know, I mean, you know, the Yankees played you know least from the Giants in in the Polo Grounds, and uh, they signed the most uh, famous player in the world, uh, or the you know the most sensational player in the world, Babe Ruth from uh, Boston. You know, once again, we're in the Northeast Quadrant, and you know, bam, uh, attendance shoots up for the uh, for the for the uh, subletters, and. Uh, John McGraw says, uh, "Why don't you get out of here and get your own stadium?" And the rest, uh, sadly, became history. I, I, I wonder <laughs> if, and again, again, that 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 was a different that that was that was the beginning of the dynasty in in, in the large, you know, the, the statistical sense, if you will, of the winning. Uh, you know, twenty three being their first World Series, and they went twenty seven and twenty eight. And after Connie Mack uh, has his run, it's it's off to the races, basically in the thirties and the forties. But um, you know that that team um, had a different feel to it. Well, I wasn't around the 1920s, so I'm, I'm just going on what I've read. Um, you know, that team had a different feel to it, the 20s Yankees, than the, the, the DiMaggio Yankees and the 
Joe McCarthy and the, the grandeur and uh, you know the the idea you know, he wasn't there yet the idea of you know Bob Shepard's voice of God uh, type of thing you know they 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 were you know the, the Roaring Twenties team they were you know, I mean it was it was almost like they were like the 1920s version of the the AFL or the ABA they were something out of this world basically that right. came and shook things up which is just hard to reckon with what the Yankees image became and well it's like Larry, Larry, Larry King Larry King who of course is a friend of the podcast Larry King has said on you know you catch him on the interviews uh, he goes Yankee Stadium was for the tourists yes yes <laughs> yes uh, that, that is Larry King and uh, has, has often said that they've People said that I, I still believe it to a certain degree. Obviously, that is kind of the thing has dissolved. I, I I will say that I I have I can say for sure, obviously. But uh, you know the, the dynamic, as you, as you use that word that you used, um, you know the Red Sox, Braves, Browns, Cardinals, A's, uh, Phillies. If it had just been Giants and Yankees, if somehow the Dodgers you know had stayed, I wonder how many. Giant fans would have just thrown in with the Yankees if the Giants just moved to right. Minneapolis because they can't. Because they, 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 that's a great question. Because yeah, I, I don't think it's, yeah. I don't. You know, and again, I, I, I say this is someone who, who reveres the Giant legacy as, as as partly because of you know how it how it led to the Mets and uh, what they shared and all that. But I think you know the Dodgers were the with the real X factor in in saying New York needs a National League team. If it, I, I think if the, just the Giants had left and you know, O'Malley had gotten his his ballpark at Flatbush and Atlantic, um, you know I don't think anybody's rushing to bring a third team into New York by any means. Right. What you probably wind up with are some some Giant fans who who would remain loyal because that was what Giant fans at, at did uh, some people who would have said, "Ah, eh, you know, I'll work for the Yankees because they're they're nearby." And uh, you know, the the two things. And this is something my my friend uh, Peter Alaska, which great story in a baseball, could talk about the Giant Yankee connection. Uh, said you know that there was sort of a symbiosis between those those two organizations. Mm-hmm. Chances are, no Giant fan was going to become a Dodger fan if they were the only action in town. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. Uh, fortu- fortunately, it never came to that. So. Uh, We'll never know. We will. We will never know. I want to state that the uh, the Rangers must be nervous about the fact that they're back home right now because they're blowing it. Uh, excuse me. Uh, they are. Uh, they are. I, I don't know who the pitcher is right now for the Rangers, but it's the bottom of the second. The Nats are now up five to nothing, and Doug Sister is back and has looked good in his first two innings. I, I don't know if this is his first game back, but it's the first time I'm seeing him back. Uh, for those of you out there who may or may not be paying attention to the whole league right now. Doug Sister got traded in the offseason from the Tigers uh, to the Nets, and uh, he's been injured. Um, Greg, you can maybe, uh, maybe you can take whether, whether or not he's been back or whether this is his first start. I don't think it's his first start, but it's one of, one of his first. And uh, it does, you know, just to, to, to dip a toe into the, uh, the contemporary um, I uh, I know they've had their their share of injuries, but I got to assume at some point the Nationals will get their act together, and uh, just as the Braves probably will. Although, and, th- and that's why, and that's where Mets fans uh, can't really get all gung ho about the fact that we're really not that far out of it, even though we we haven't looked the best. Um, if, if you subtract the 
you know, the Diamondbacks and the Cubs, everybody else in the National League, 13 out of 15 teams is in a, is in a playoff race. <laughs> and that, that won't hold. It just won't. I mean, even yeah. you know, the Mets, uh, four games below 500, as are the Phillies and the, the, the Reds, the Padres, all kind of on the outskirts, uh, four or five games below. But nobody's more than about four and a half, five games at, at most. I think it was four games. I looked it up last night. Uh, from being in the wild card race, the difference between the top wild card team right now which is the Cardinals, they're only a few games above 500, and the Reds, who have the lowest winning percentage, not counting those two teams I mentioned, the Diamondbacks and Cubs, who are dreadful, um, it's about four and a half games. So, And the, whoever's the second-place wildcard team at the moment is four games ahead. So it's a scramble, and yeah, anything can happen. As uh, you know, in a, in a in a world where there are five playoff positions to be had, uh, in, uh, unlike what the Dodgers and Giants and, and the Phillies went through in in, in their day, in in the uh, eight-team National League, um, you know, you can you can still be crazy optimistic at one third of the season, but. Um, I can't believe that the Nationals, with all their talent, won't get it together with 108 or so games to go. And I can't believe the Braves are going to be as lethargic forever. But then again, you know, I'm sure that... I actually think the Braves can be as lethargic forever. I don't know. You know, they don't... They're down. They've been trying to handle that. That's true. The Nats, I have more faith in in turning it around. Uh, And I don't don't really have any faith in Terry Collins being the man to... Bring us to our first wild card, uh, to, to our first playoff spot in a while. No, not not at all. You know, but then, you know, I was going to say, if we were sitting here 45 years ago at this time, we'd be looking at the National League East. Well, it would have been a little different because the the Cubs would have had a nice big lead. But we'd say, you know what, the Cardinals are going to we're going to pour it on because the Cardinals always win in the end, and uh, you know the Pirates will get some pitching because they have so much so much hitting and. Yeah, you know, the Mets look good now. They're beating the Giants and Dodgers <laughs> at Shea Stadium for the first time in their lives. But, you know, they're going to probably come back to earth because of the Mets. And, you know, once in a while, a team, you know, transcends that sort of, uh, you know, the, the, their, their role, if you will. I mean, you know, there was what it was. It, it doesn't seem now that it was only six years ago that, you know, the Rays had been horrible forever, and then yeah. one day you woke up and they were in first place or fighting for first place. And, and when they're they're, they're performing the way they're performing now, uh, it, it it's rare, and it makes you go, that's weird. Like, it's it's one of those things, you know. Yeah, and that's they're winning, you go, shocking that's to see, It's shocking to realize the Rays have the worst record in the American League now. How, how far have they come that that is something that uh, seems hard to believe. But then again, they, you know, there, there are teams where when you say there's two-thirds of the season left, you say it will work to their advantage. And there are teams like the Mets where you say there's two-thirds of the season left, and it's like, so it's probably just going to be more of the same. Right, right, exactly. Uh, do you have uh, time to go over a bit? Sure. Okay, great. Um, so I, I had pulled up on the computer since we were uh, kind of winging it, and I was, uh, we were talking about going the Philadelphia route. Um, but I pulled up 1941, uh, which was obviously, uh, famously, the Dodgers were uh, really back on the map and won their first pennant uh, since 1920. Uh, and what's crazy, talking about the, the Philadelphia, the 1941 Philadelphia Phillies, uh, you were talking about, you know, you know, one of the worst teams to uh, ever, uh, based off of the record, I, I'd have to call them one of the worst teams to play in the modern era. Uh, well, not the modern era, because I guess that's really the expansion era, but you, you get my drift. Yeah, yeah. They were 43 
and won 11, and it took nine games uh, to beat the Dodgers, and nine games against each other to beat the Dodgers that year. And that was on July 1st, 1941, when the Philadelphia Phillies beat the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, in Ebbets Field by a score of 6-4. They were 20-49 and 49 at the time against the Dodgers, who were 47-24. and 24. And uh, I'm sure plenty of people in Brooklyn were like, I think this could be the year. This could be the year. Uh, <laughs> and I, I always like to go over some of the lineups of, uh, of these games, so I'm going to read off the lineup here and uh, you know take take it from uh, take it from there based off of any name that uh, you know anything that pops into your head. Uh, so starting for the uh, the road Philadelphia Phillies that day, uh, leading off was Hal Marnie at second base, Danny uh, Litweiler was the left fielder batting second. Joe Marty was the center fielder batting third. Stan Benjamin was the first baseman batting fourth. Johnny Rizzo, uh, had no, I don't know if it's any relation to Anthony Rizzo. Um, he was in right field batting fifth. Bobby Bragan, the shortstop that day, was uh, batting sixth. Uh, batting seventh was Benny Warren, the catcher. Pinky May at third base. What, what a baseball name, Pinky May. Uh, was at third base that day, batting eighth and pitching, and obviously batting ninth was Lee Grissom for the Philadelphia Phillies. And for the uh, hometown Brooklyn Dodgers, you had uh, Pee Wee Reese at shortstop leading off, Billy Herman second base, uh, batting second, uh, Cookie Lavagetto third base, batting third, Joe Medvick left field, batting fourth, Pete Reeser center field, Joe Vosmick right field, batting sixth, Jimmy Wasdell at first base and batting seventh. Herman Franks, catching. And Fitz, Freddie Fitzsimmons, pitching and batting ninth. And um, it's funny, you look at this, this, uh, the lineup for the Dodgers and you, you, you see Jimmy Wadsdale at first base and you think, oh, well, that's, that's why they lost, right? <laughs> and Herman Franks and catching, you know. You had Mickey Owen normally catching and you had, um, oh, God, how am I blanking on the name? Um, uh, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Greg. I'm going to look up the the name of their first baseman. Uh, Dolph Camilli. Ah, Dolph. Thank you. Jeez. Um, you know, just looking at at this lineup, uh, you know, the only, the only name that uh, other than Pinky May seems like a, a, a familiar name, uh, just from one of those uh, uh, you know, Van Lingle Mungo type songs. <laughs> um, Bobby Bragan, you know, future manager. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, you know, I'm not enough of a uh, Phillies historian to tell you anything about any of those guys. <laughs> um, unless uh, I see, uh, I'm, this is the July 1st game, right? July 1st, yeah. Yeah, so Chuck, Chuck Klein, who had had a great career with pinch hit that day, I think he was past his prime at that point. You're not going to get this, but who was managing the Phillies? Uh, without looking, I could not tell you. Yeah, Doc Prothrow. Okay, well, they, probably a, a lot of guys came and went as, as as Philly managers over the decades, and you know, again, this is the these are the days. On one hand, because of you know, the reserve clause and limited mobility for players, that if you were a fan, you got stuck with players like these. Uh, no, no offense uh, if, if any if any of their descendants are listening in. I'm, I'm sure they all were, you know, good good ball players in their own way in, in their youth. But um, on the other hand, you know, there was a dependability. Again, the dependability is better if you're rooting for a team that wins a lot. 
Uh, but there's a dependability as a fan of knowing who's on your team year after year. And one of the things that uh, this brings to mind is a one of, one of the uh, meetings of uh, the, the one of the giant uh, groups that I belong to several years ago. There was just this. I don't remember you know, where the conversation uh, had come from, but it landed at a moment where somebody just sat there and just rattled off every lineup in the National League from you know, some season in the late 30s or the early 40s or whenever his childhood was. And I think that was just you know, something that probably, you know, you've gotten grained into you because you saw the same teams over and over again. And you saw the you know you you became so familiar and baseball was such you know a constant not only I think not only if you were a fan but just because baseball was you know the sport in this country in those days and um, you know I, I I experienced that you know to a certain degree growing up that I can still you know snap back and remember certain lineups from the early 70s that I, that I saw over and over again and remember stuff I read in the back of baseball cards like it was yesterday from uh, you know 45 years ago or whatever but um, you know that this was you know you, you if you were a Phillies fan you you lived with uh, with these guys and you were a Dodgers fan you know especially in Brooklyn especially the closeness of the community uh, you know if I no I, I grew up even though, even though I uh, don't uh, come come from a uh, real baseball uh, crazy family by any means. I grew up hearing the name Pistol Pete Reeser from my mother. You know, every right. now and then, almost, almost a free floating <laughs> reference. If I was watching a Mets game or something, or baseball would come up, and she would just start musing about Pistol Pete Reeser, and uh, you know, who didn't have the longest uh, career, sadly, but um, it's one of the most interesting uh, characters in, yeah. in the story. And that was one just just to, uh, you know, I, I touched on him uh, at the beginning of our talk, but uh, there there was a game in 2005, a Mets, it doesn't really matter who they were playing, I think it was the Cubs, but... Uh, they probably, probably won that day and then lost the next day and then won that day and lost the yeah, next day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, as it happened, uh, Cliff, actually I think they swept that series, it was a weekend sweep against the Cubs, I believe. Um and Cliff Lloyd was batting, and Ralph Kiner was doing the game. He did a few, you know, a few, was still doing like somewhat more regularly broadcasting than than he did in the SNY years uh, when he was just sort of a, a special guest. Anyway, the point is that Cliff Lloyd was batting, and he did something at the plate, and Ralph Kiner just very casually said, "That's you know, you know, that's a lot like Pete Reeser would do." <laughs> and I'm like, "This is 2005, so we're you know." Very far removed from the heyday of Pete Reeser, and there, and I just loved the fact that there was somebody in a broadcast booth in the 21st century who could casually invoke, you know, again, not not Babe Ruth, not Lou Gehrig, not you know, not not an all timer in the Hall of Fame, but Pete Reeser, who was you know a very promising player who had his career cut short. And it meant, you know, and and he wasn't just like throwing the name out there. He had like an actual parallel to draw with a guy who was on the field that night, and uh, you know, Fran Healy being what kind of broadcaster he was, sort of, uh, you know, didn't pick up on the cue and uh, start talking about something else. I never got to hear why Cliff Floyd and Pete Reeser <laughs> were the same sort of batters, but um, you know, th- these were. You know, on the Dodgers side of the box score, you know, some of these names, you know, were 
were just, you know, again, part of, part of the language of growing up uh, in New York, even for somebody who was a generation or two removed from it because, you know, they were part of the family and part of the community. And, you know, that even somebody who wasn't a crazy baseball fan like my mother or my father, uh, you know, could still talk, could probably still picture Pete Reeser and uh, bring, bring him up into conversation, even if it was just for a moment, even if it was just to say, hey, remember the good old days with Pete Reeser and Pee Wee Reese and Billy Herman and, and whoever. So um, I'm, I'm also uh, fa- fascinated to see, uh, you know, Herman Franks in this box car because, you know, Herman Franks was, was one of uh, DeRocher's deputies uh, in 1951 and uh, certainly would, would play a role uh, on the other side of the giant Dodger rivalry. And uh, and uh, J- Joe Midwick finishing up his uh, his grand cookie Lavagetto and a, a, regi- mm-hmm. a coach of, on the original Mets. Uh, yeah. whose, whose name was invoked by Howie Rose earlier this week. Uh, That's right. Telling the marvelous Marva he didn't touch, you know, he didn't touch first or second Casey uh, story. <laughs> uh, when uh, for anybody who hasn't hasn't somehow hasn't heard it, uh, you know, Marva under his triples against uh, the Cubs on uh, Father's Day, 1962. It's a cause for great festivity and celebration at the Polo Grounds, and of course. Uh, Ernie Banks calls for the ball, steps on first, and uh, Marv is, is ruled out because, uh, no, he did not touch first on his way to third, and Casey comes out to argue, and Cookie Lavagetto pulls him aside, says, don't bother, Casey, he didn't touch second either. So, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, this this was 1941. This was those guys' moments in time, and, uh, you, know, it's, you know, as much as we complain or, or, or bemoan the fact that the Mets uh, haven't been in a playoff situation in eight whole years, the Dodgers had gone 21 years <laughs> without right. winning, which is something they haven't done since. If, if you go and look at the franchise, the Dodger franchise from 1941 forward, they have never gone more than eight years without making the postseason since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, right up to last year, and again, you know, it's a it's a different world. It's a different postseason setup. There are more spots available, but you know, <clears throat> I had done some research on this uh, a few years ago, and was thinking that, you know, if, if you go no more than two presidential administrations, two presidential terms, anyway, you know, or you know, two two Olympic cycles, however you want to call it. You go eight, no more than eight years. Like you're doing okay, <laughs> and uh, you know Dodger fans have been in this cycle. I, you know, this is assuming the Dodger fan would have been alive and sentient and continued to root for the Dodgers when they moved. You've never gone more than eight years. I think it's only twice has it been an eight-year gap: sixty-six to seventy-four, and I think you know, eighty-eight to ninety-six. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, every few years the Dodgers are in it. And the A's since 1971, Connie Mack's uh, progeny, uh, sooner or later get back to the playoffs. No matter how bad things look for them, no matter how nobody shows up in Oakland, no matter what kind of stadium they're stuck with, um, it's you know, so, some teams, some organizations just kind of know what they're doing, or have them. In the Dodgers' case, at some point, got to throw enough money at it, and, and it's stuck. So, um, but you know, 1941 is where it all began, really. Uh, because they were, they were, as I will tell you, they were one of, also one of the worst teams in baseball forever. And um, you know, the 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 the, fan, the fandom of many people were, were hardened pre-1941. They probably never fully accepted the fact that the Dodgers were now one of the most successful franchises on the field. Never mind at the box office. In yeah, the- it still felt like you know, they're still the especially Dodgers. losing to the Yankees. It still feels yeah. feels like um, you know the same. 
And and when and when the Mets came to be in 1962, and they were compared to the Dodgers, it wasn't because they were winning pennant after pennant and playing brash, exciting baseball like the the boys of summer did. It was because they were the Dodgers of the 20s and the 30s uh, reincarnated. So uh, it's it's just it's funny how, how some some of these legacies just you know hold on. It's it's remarkable. Well, uh, we don't have too much time left. Um, but but let's end with this and and just you know uh, unfortunately I I should have I set the show for sixty minutes uh, and I should have set it for about ninety minutes um, and I, I I'm new to having more time and I don't know whether we're going to get cut off uh, now that now that it's it's paid you know now now that it's uh, being paid for um, okay. based off the duration but you brought up Fran Healy. And if you could give a little quick uh, why Fran Healy didn't work when it came to the uh, uh, to the Mets broadcasting, and then we'll end with that. Fran Healy was a shill. <laughs> I think that's what what gets me is that the beauty of of Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, and Lindsay Elston, and and the legacy they established as broadcasters, much like Vin Scully has, has maintained, you know, that he got from Red Barber and and continued all these years, is that you know. Of of course, there there was you know an inherent lean to the home team or the team he was working for, the team that most people were tuning in to hear about. But it was very fair and very honest. And Fran Healy was not of that ilk. Fran Healy was just all about come on out to Shea. Shea is going to be rocking art. The Mets great and just even though you know he he did games you know in in their glory years you know he was doing sports channel games in 1986 so uh, you sort of put up with it um many years they were not that good and there was something about Fran Healy that that just came off as sort of practiced and I don't want to say phony because I I don't know that that uh, that's uh, that's sort of pejorative but um somebody you just didn't want to watch a game with let's put it that way and you know, so, some guys some guys are, are good company to watch a baseball game with when they're when they're announcing, and some guys are horrible company. Turn down the sound company and put on the radio company, and that was Fran Healy, just overbearing. And you know, he had a decent career as a catcher, and he would try to kind of pull the the Bob Uecker thing of, oh boy, I was so bad. I remember he was doing a game with Tim McCarver, also a catcher, uh, at some point, and he tried to pull that. Tim McCarver said, no, he said like, don't say that. You were a good catcher. You were you were a good you were a good player. But they kind of shut Fran Healy up that night. But there was, and again, something about the way he talked. Yes, yeah, Fran Healy is no Bob Uecker. Yeah, no, no Bob Uecker. There was nothing you know. There was nothing charming about him, and there was nothing insightful about him. And every which is why which is why he's on MSG now. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> and well, Greg, remark- Greg, I, I very much appreciate it, and, and okay. I'm sorry for setting it up that uh, there's okay. a possibility we get cut I, off. I, I, um, I can I can flag on Fran Healy some other time. <laughs> exactly. No, but th- that is something that we'll we'll have to uh, say. You know, for all you Met fans out there, head over to uh, the Rising Apple Report uh, um, the next time Greg is on, and we'll certainly continue. And I have to ask him some well, more Fran Healy. If I, if uh, I can, if I can very quickly just put 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 a, a capper on the Fran Healy discussion. When you and, and to bring it into all of what we've been talking about, when you see the footage of Willie Mays hitting the home run against the Giants in his first game as a Met, the catcher Fran Healy. Brand Healy. Greg, thank you very much. Always thank a pleasure. You, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly, uh, you know, it can keep going forever. Great stuff. <laughs> uh, one, we, you know, we've reached 115, and after, after all that buildup, 
we have not gotten cut off. Maybe you get uh, for a ha- maybe you get a half hour uh, of, of time. It's funny, you know, being this loose about it and, and, and not structured. <laughs> like some people, I'm sure there's some radio broadcasters out there just going, "What is this kid doing?" But we're not getting cut off. I obviously haven't read the uh, the Blog Talk Radio handy book, uh, but. Um, I, I, I guess uh, we'll end the show, and even though even if we could uh, potentially continue, uh, why don't why don't we, you know, more save some for a rainy day and uh, make sure that you turn uh, tune back into uh, Bedford Sullivan in the later date, everybody out there. Greg, do you want to take it? Uh, you know what? When you're a New York National League baseball fan, and two of your teams have gone, and and the third of them is the Mets, it's always a rainy day. So there, there's always plenty to talk about. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you again, Greg. Thank you. That's our show, everybody. Have a great Saturday afternoon. Looks like a lovely one out there in the Northeast. Take care.